Last time we finished chapter four, we looked at the uh, healing of the official's son uh, uh, in, in Cana, and then we began chapter five. And so we, we really kind of looked at the miracle itself that takes place in chapter five. Today we're gonna kind of look at the fallout from that. With, with the official's son, we saw actually a lot of similarities to another miracle that occurred earlier in Cana, and that is the, um, the turning of the water into wine. And what John is pointing out by kind of highlighting all these similarities is he's pointing out that this is kind of a self-contained section of the Gospel of John, chapters 2 through 4. And so if you look through it, you see you know, how complete a Savior uh, Jesus Christ is. You need Jesus Christ just as much when you're celebrating uh, kind of in the good times of life at a wedding feast or something like that as you need him when someone's on the brink of death. Uh, within that section, we saw um, that uh, you know, Jesus is very much the, the, the Messiah. The, his coming is kind of uh, ushered in the, the messianic age. Uh, we saw that everyone is in need of the gospel from you know, uh, the most studied, the most religious of, of the day who needed to throw out everything he had done and start over with a new birth. But we saw that also that the lowest of the low are not beneath the gospel. Uh, the Samaritan woman at the well uh, was able to receive the gospel. And not only did she receive the gospel from Jesus, but she told her, uh, kind of the, her you know, fellow Samaritans about it, and many in that village were converted uh, because of the testimony of her. So the if there's kind of one theme, it's that Jesus is kind of one savior for all people for all times in, in that section. Starting in chapter 5, we're, we're seeing a different focus to the miracles. And uh, almost all of the miracles in this section are really going to point to the reality that Jesus is, uh, is able to save and point to the reality of salvation. We, we saw that with the healing of the paralytic. So the, the scene, as you recall, is that there's a, a pool in Jerusalem that a lot of invalids would congregate around, blind, blind lame, um, uh, deaf, and they were kind of hoping for a healing from these waters that were stirred. Jesus goes to that pool and selects one individual and you know, heals that person, and then he comes back to that person several days later, some period of time later, I probably should say, in, in the temple, and... I think says a little bit more about uh, himself to that person. That person didn't know who Jesus was when he was healed, but learns more about Jesus you know, in that very brief exchange that's recorded. But in this section of John, the sign itself is going to take a back seat to what the sign means. We're going to see that very consistently with kind of the remaining signs with one possible exception. At the very end of this sign, there's kind of one line that wouldn't be all that important except that it really occupies the rest of the chapter in a sense, and that is that the healing took place on the Sabbath. And so the, the Pharisees latch on to that. So I'm going to go ahead and read the sign just to get, this, get us back in the mind of, of that, but then we're going to kind of focus in on the, the healing that takes place on the Sabbath. Um, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate an Aramaic uh, a, a, sorry, a, a pool in Aramaic called uh, Bethesda, which had five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of individuals, blind, lame, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. 
Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed and took up his bed and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man that was healed, It is a Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick, up, pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who Jesus was, for he had slipped away into the, cr the crowd that was there. Jesus later found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So the, the issue of the Sabbath isn't very much of an issue in the, the sign itself, but that's gonna, uh, you, what that sparks, at least, is going to occupy the rest of the chapter. And so that's what we're going to uh, focus in on today, if we can get through this. I don't know if we will quite be able to do that. <clears throat> Oops, and I was not keeping up on slides. So the, the section I'd like to look at next starts in verse 16. So because, Jewish, sorry, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was, he was even calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. So I'd, I'd like to step back just a little bit from the text and say a little bit about what uh, Sabbath-keeping had become in Jesus' time. The Pharisees did have some things right, but they had become very legalistic. Yeah. They had 600 and some odd uh, rules that they had kind of interpreted out of what it means not to work on the Sabbath. And so it was a ton of work just to figure out what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. Uh, th there was a certain prescribed distance that you could, tr could travel. And so if you needed to get a little bit farther or to get to a synagogue to worship, for example, there were ways of doing it. You, you had to kind of come up with a trick. You could leave something at a friend's house and kind of stop to there and that sort of, because you had something there, it was your domicile and that allowed you to kind of continue your journey. Um, you know, you, you couldn't carry uh, a pin across the room because that was carrying a burden. But if it was part of your outfit, it was fine. So you could just sort of incorporate it into your outfit if you needed to get it someplace. The, the rules had really become um, quite silly, and it missed the entire point. I think Tim would probably say it was a splendid exercise in missing the point of the Sabbath. Um, <clears throat> the Sabbath is intended you know, to be a joy. Um, you know, the idea of having a day that we don't have to work but we get to enjoy God. How, how could that be a bad thing? And you know, the, you know, having so many rules to follow uh, you know, certainly, I think, made it into a, a burden rather than a joy. And, and you can certainly see that with the Pharisees when you know, someone is healed and is carrying a mat across town, which probably doesn't really prevent him. In fact, the, the fact that he's been healed and no longer has to lie on this mat but gets to carry it, I mean, that's... That's a good thing, but to them, it's technically work. Uh, so they, they, they miss the point as well. <clears throat> so when, when Jesus is challenged as to whether he's breaking the Sabbath, he hasn't broken the Old Testament, you shall not work on the Sabbath command. 
He's broken the understanding of the Sabbath that the Pharisees, or he's, he's told this man to break the understanding that the Pharisees have of the Sabbath. This is a relatively straightforward theological thing. And elsewhere, Jesus will argue that. He'll say the Sabbath uh, was made for man. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath, you know, to defend um, you know, healing on the Sabbath. But he, he doesn't do that here. Um, you know, this, this should be a minor kind of little theological disagreement. It's something that you know, one could debate but not get themselves into all that much trouble on because it's an interpretation of the law. It's not uh, the law it, itself. Um, if Jesus had responded that way, he could have possibly, he would have had a chance at least to correct the understanding of the, the religious leaders about the Sabbath. They probably would not have listened to him. And so not all that much would have uh, been accomplished. And so let's take a look at how Jesus actually does uh, respond. His answer is, my father is working until now, and I am working. That probably doesn't make a lot of sense to the majority of us unless you really understand kind of Jewish thought in the first century. One of the questions that you, uh, a Jewish scholar would be very familiar with is the question, does God have to keep the law? And at first we might say, well, yeah, of course. But if you think about it for a second, there are aspects of the law that would be difficult to understand how God could keep. For example, if God didn't do something to sustain creation, the universe would cease to exist every Sabbath. Um, and so God needs to sustain creation in, in some way, at least, to prevent the universe from popping out of existence. And so the question is, is God working to do that? And that was kind of an open question in, in Judaism at the time, although I think the, the consensus would say that God didn't have to keep the Sabbath. God would work to maintain creation on the Sabbath. And I think Jesus' answer kind of gets at that. So if, if you have that in, in mind, then I think Jesus' answer makes a lot more sense. My father is working. My father you know, maintains creation on, on the Sabbath. And so I'm doing the same thing that my father's doing. I'm working too. Um, in other words, he's, he's claiming to be God. And there are, are probably worse things that he could have said, but I had a hard time coming up with any. <laughs> um, if, you, if you see your notes, I said, why does Jesus you know, dump gasoline on a, f a small fire here? Uh, you know, in, in, in terms of trying to diffuse the situation, this is not the way to do it. Um, he's unambiguously uh, claiming to be God. So he's, he's got a kind of a minor theological dispute that he probably can't get himself into too much trouble with. And he completely changes that to you know, a, a claim of deity. Um, that puzzled me. Why, why did Jesus answer this way when I was originally preparing these years ago? I, I thought about it, and I, I think the, the answer once I realize it, it's fairly obvious, and I hope I've set it up in a way that you might even kind of be starting to see it. The Pharisees didn't need a, a better theology of the Sabbath. They needed a Savior. And so Jesus doesn't want to waste time discussing a minor theological point with them. Jesus wants to take them to the issue that they actually need to understand that they're uh, completely blind to. Who is he? Um, they needed to see you know, Jesus as God in the flesh, or they'd perish eternally. Jesus was willing to confront them directly uh, with that need, despite you know, the response that he knew would come. 
And as I understood that, you know, seeing what, what Jesus did, I was just kind of amazed at, you know, the love that Jesus is showing uh, for the, the this group that were actively persecuting him at the, at the time by really confronting them, even though he, he knew that it would get him into trouble. Um, and he knew that this you know, same set of religious leaders in a few years would eventually kill him. And I, there's there's a, certainly a, a lesson here that's worth uh, pointing out before we go on. You're not all you know, theologically correct arguments are necessarily worth arguing. Um, in the, if you kind of correct somebody on a, a minor point, but they, they miss Jesus as, as Savior, you haven't really done them all that much good. I would call that rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Um, the, I, and I'm not saying that it isn't appropriate sometimes to argue with someone that, you know, in this case, they, they misunderstood the Sabbath, but you might misunderstand something else about Christianity. But if you don't eventually lead them to who Jesus Christ is, you certainly haven't done them any good if you're arguing a secondary point. Uh, and it can e be easy to get bogged down in those. But you know, make sure that you're, you're ultimately you have an idea how to lead someone to, uh, to Jesus, because that's really the only question that matters. I would take uh, verse 18 as suggesting that there's some sort of a pause and... At some point later, you know, this issue kind of comes up with the Jews. I, I, I certainly couldn't prove that, but I, I think that it probably reads the, the best that way. So I'd, I'd like to take a look at 19 um, and, and the verses that follow that. <clears throat> so it, it, at some point later, Jesus is kind of defending himself against the Jews. Listen for the, the language here. The language is going to be very legal. You're going to see judgment, convict, um, uh, witnesses, uh, uh, courtroom language. A lot of commentators will say that Jesus may have been you know, called to defend himself, possibly before the Sanhedrin, maybe in front of, uh, maybe he was accused by a group of Jews. There's certainly courtroom language in the rest of the chapter. And whether they're right that you know, this is a, a legal setting where Jesus is defending himself or whether John is kind of um, highlighting you know, Jesus' defense in that way, it doesn't really matter. It's probably not a bad picture to have of what's happening as you, Jesus defending himself uh, for the remainder of the chapter. So with that in mind, go ahead and listen. We're going to look at uh, 19 through 24. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that uh, he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that, you, so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. For the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son, just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. So the, the first thing to kind of ask yourself is how does verse 19 follow uh, verse 18? Verse 18, you, you have the, the Jews kind of actively seeking to persecute Jesus and Jesus comes back and says, the son can do nothing of his own accord but whatever he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son likewise does. I, 
uh, I take most of what's recorded in John as kind of brief snippet, snippets. You know, this would be certainly a longer discourse as it actually occurred. John has kind of condensed it down for several reasons. One of them is to kind of save space, but also to kind of highlight the you know, theological themes that he thinks is important. And I, he does expect us to do a little bit of unpacking. So the, the thought process that I had, at least as I looked at this, is if Jesus has basically claimed to be God uh, in the, the previous section on the Sabbath, what what would a Jewish how would a Jewish person respond to that? Very likely, you know, Jews, as, as rightfully as strict monotheists, would say, "Wait a minute, you can't be God. You're talking about God the Father as a separate entity. How can you also be God?" That uh, would be absurd in the context of monotheism. And so, I think that's the charge that they're bringing to Jesus. And if you read um, Jesus' response that way, Jesus' response makes perfect sense. Um, he's saying that. The son does nothing of his own accord but what he sees the father doing. For whatever the, the father does, so the son does likewise. The father loves the son and shows them all that uh, he himself is doing. The idea is that there's perfect unity between the son and the father. And so you can have three persons and one God. I, I think that's the defense uh, that, that Jesus is, is making to the very likely charge that I don't think we have quite recorded. <clears throat> Um, the, the agenda is perfectly united because although there are three persons, the Spirit's not really dealt with here, but we, we certainly, uh, you know, of course, acknowledge also that the Spirit is, is very much God, just as God the Father and God the Son are. Um, that, uh, that you, you can uh, talk about them being so united in purpose that, that there is one God. In other words, Jesus is defending the concept of the Trinity against the charge that it's not monotheistic. Um, you know, as a result... That you know, Jesus kind of needs to justify the Trinity in this section. What we what we've got is an incredibly rich uh, section, kind of for the remainder of this chapter. Uh, entire Sunday school series could very easily be taught on some of the concepts that would come up here, just half of a verse. Uh, we're not going to do that. I'm not going to go into a lot of depth on too many things, although I, there's a, a few things that I think are kind of worth lingering on a little bit. But I think it is worth just listening to what one of the commentators that I read had to say on this section. This is J.C. Ryle talking about the section that begins in verse 19. There are a few chapters in the Bible, perhaps, where we feel our own shallowness of understanding so thoroughly and discover so completely the insufficiency of human language to express the deep things of God. Men are often saying that they want explanations for the mysteries of the Christian faith, the Trinity, the Incarnation, the person of Jesus Christ, and the like. Let them just observe, when we find a passage full of explanatory statements of, of a deep subject, how much there is that we have no line to fathom and no mind to take in. We want more light, says the proud man. God gives him the des his desire in this chapter and lifts up the veil but a little. But, behold, we are dazzled by the very light that we want, and we find that we have no eyes to take it in. And that that really kind of summarized how I felt as I kind of looked over this section. Uh, the more I looked at it, the, the more I, I saw that was there. Um, but it was a, a very difficult section to approach. I think this is, I, I found it at least to be one of the most difficult sections in John. Um, another thing to kind of point out in 19 through 24, I'm not going to put all those verses up, but 
if, if you kind of look at them and stand, at what stands out overall, Jesus isn't just emphasizing a unity in God, uh, like he, do, he does in 19.20, but he also emphasizes a similarity of works. Both raise the dead and give life. The Father, the father delegates judgment to the Son, um, whereas judgment would kind of traditionally kind of be thought to, to uh, be with God the Father in, in Jewish thought at that time. Um, all will come to honor the Son as they honor God. And if you think about it, you know, never once in the Bible does anyone, not even an angel, you know, accept worship. Um, worship always belongs to God and God alone. And so simply by uh, saying that all will honor the Son, that's a, not a very subtle claim in kind of correct Christian thinking to deity uh, right there. The next uh, subject that Jesus comes to, this starts in verse 22, is the idea of judgment. Uh, Jesus explains that the Father has entrusted judgment to the Son. And there, there's very le legal language here. Um, John really loves to point out irony. Um, here are the religious leaders, and they're sitting in judgment, not over, not only over the God of the universe, but also over the judge of all. Um, we do not see this uh, as easily, I don't think, as John's readers would have. I think it would have jumped out at them a little bit more just because of the way thought has changed. Uh, there's a quote by C.S. Lewis that, to me at least, really uh, kind of helped me to see uh, something that has gone on in relatively recent times that it's just so familiar to us that we're kind of blind to it. Um, so, so listen to Lewis here. This is from God in the Dock. Uh, and before you read it, I, I just need to explain a little bit about the British court system. Um, a judge would sit on the bench. Uh, so if you hear bench, that's where the judge sits. The dock is where a criminal, the accused, would sit in the British court system. And so you do need to know that to kind of unpack what this is saying. The ancient man approached God, or, or even the gods, as the accused person ap approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are quite reversed. He is the judge. That is, the modern man is the judge. God is in the dock. He is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being a God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he's ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. And if you think back, we see again and again God in the dock. <laughs> you know, people kind of standing in judgment. How can God be uh, this way? And this would not have happened the same way in the ancient world. People would have accepted God as God. And that, that's something that has kind of changed in, in modern thinking. Thankfully, we, we have a God that very much can uh, uh, withstand examination. Uh, and Jesus is very much God in the dock in, in this uh, section, and he does quite well for himself, as we would, of course, completely expect. But... Um, I think John's readers would have seen that a little bit more easily than we did, and that's why I wanted to take a little bit of time to point that out. The next thing that I think is worth highlighting, uh, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Um, if, you, if you think about a defendant in a courtroom saying something like that, it, it's not typical. It, it really does kind of jump out. Um, now, Jesus is making an outlandish claim here. All we have to do is look through the claims of various religious leaders, or mental patients for that matter, to find similarly grandiose claims. How do we know that Jesus' claims are genuine? And how do we show ourselves to be guilty for ignoring them? 
when we do rightly ignore similar claims made by a, a, a false religious teacher or a lunatic? Um, I'd like to be able to really answer that, but in a way, Jesus is answering that in this section. Um, I, I don't know if we'll have time. In fact, looking at the clock, we will not have time this day, day to really get to a defense of that, but we will look at it more next time. Mark. Yeah, but but once our eyes are opened, it you know it's such an an easy case to accept. Um, the the reason that we reject it without the Holy Spirit isn't because it isn't obvious, but uh, because our hearts are hardened against it. We're we we will not accept it, and we do not want because we do not want to accept it. Um, and I, so I, I think it is worth understanding that you know it, it, there, there, there's a good logical defense to it. But I, I completely agree with what you said. Yeah, yeah, um, and that, that's why this is such a challenging section because we—it's we, it, it, a, a big theme in it, at least, is the mystery of the Trinity. Um, yeah, we—it it, with. Perfect 2020 hindsight, you know, seeing the Trinity so clearly explained in the New Testament, we can kind of see glimpses of it in the Old Testament, but it is far from clear. Um, and I, I don't think any, the, the idea that God would be three persons, I don't think it occurred to anyone. Uh, and so it, you know, it's not completely surprising that the Pharisees would, would question Jesus on this. You know, how can you be God if there's also God the Father in heaven? Um, but Jesus is taking the time to explain that. Did that answer your question? Yeah, I don't know if we'll quite get to that today, but uh, Daniel 7 very much comes up in this. Uh, there's a very specific uh, allusion to it. Um, and I, I would also point to the, the servant in Isaiah. There's four servant songs in, can, kind of contained in the section of Isaiah 40 through 65. And that person can only be God, but is also separate from God. And they were very puzzled by that, um, and, and, and still are, unfortunately. Um, so th there are hints, but y yeah, I, I, I don't, I, I don't think any of us would have been able to, to see it without the benefit of 2020 hindsight. Very much so. Yes. Uh, 
No. The idea that the Pharisee would actually, or sorry, the, the idea that the, that, um, the Messiah was going to be God, uh, they, they didn't expect. They expected kind of a greater David, um, kind of a greater prophet. Uh, but I don't think that they expected the, the Messiah to be God because that would not be compatible with monotheism. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> Very much. Yes. And yeah. Well, well said, Mark. Thank you. <clears throat> so let's continue on to 25 through 29. Uh, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Uh, for the Father has life in himself. Oh, sorry. For as the Father has life in himself, so has he granted that the Son should also have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Oops. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll just read 27 because it's not up there. Um, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will uh, come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So what does Jesus mean in verse 25 about the dead you know, hearing his uh, words and, and living. Um, a lot it would be the, the short answer. Uh, those of us that are familiar with John, our, our minds probably immediately jump to Lazarus a, a few chapters later because this is just, you know, the, the, uh, Jesus raising Lazarus kind of you know, fits these words so clearly. Um, I'm going to argue that it's not that, and I'll come back to why in just a little bit. Um, it, but I, I think it's hard not to imagine that John might have not, not have had that at least in his mind when he's writing this and intentionally it kind of highlights the similarities to what we, we see with Lazarus. I, but I don't think it's the uh, I don't think it's Jesus point. I would prefer uh, to say that you know, Lazarus is pointing to the same reality that this text points to. Um, the, the Pharisees believed in a general resurrection at the end of the age when God would raise the dead. Um, and this kind of points there, except Jesus is saying that the hour is coming and is now here. Um, later on, when he's talking about you know, the judgment at the end of time, he's saying that the hour is coming, but he doesn't add that is now, now is, is now here. So I think Jesus is very much talking about the present. Um, so um, you know, Jesus is claiming you know, that... Uh, that you know, he's uh, calling people to, to spiritual life and they're, they're coming to see him. It's, not a, it's a present reality. Um, the, the main point must be that Jesus is uh, spiritually giving life to the dead. Um, and Lazarus, the, the resurrection of Lazarus, I would certainly say is the clearest picture we have in the Gospel of John of salvation, of what Jesus is talking about here when he's calling and giving life to the dead. Um, so I... I don't see that you know, Jesus. Um, I, I don't. I don't think that if Jesus were referring to Lazarus here, I think that's kind of missing the point. Lazarus was raised. He might have lived a few decades longer and died. What was accomplished by raising Lazarus, just in physical terms, isn't all that much. It didn't really change anything in a substantive way. Spiritually, what uh, we we see shown is Jesus' power to call the spiritual spiritually dead to spiritual life. 
in that. And that is something that has eternal significance every single time it happens. Um, so I, I think Lazarus is a sign to the, uh, that points to the reality that Jesus calls the spiritually dead and raises them to life. Just, um, and, and so that, that's why there's this uh, correspondence there. The reality that the sign points to is what's important. It's not the sign itself. <clears throat> um, you, this is also you know, a not-so-subtle claim to divinity. Jesus is saying, you know, I'm doing the same things that God does. Yes. Okay. So uh, listen to the verses that, that follow. So 26. Uh, For as the Father has life in himself, so is he granted to the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who, uh, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. With our interpretation about you know, Jesus you know, kind of giving spiritual life in 25 uh, as you know, another way of describing the new birth, Jesus' role uh, in resurrection is a confirmation of the reality of the new birth now. My, my paraphrase of what kind of Jesus is getting across here would be this. Do not marvel that the hour has now come when Jesus will make spiritually dead persons to be alive. Why shouldn't we expect one who, is, who will, will physically raise the, the dead at the end of the age to also be able to spiritually raise the dead now? I, th I think that's kind of what, what uh, Jesus is trying to, to say in this section. Uh, at the, uh, <clears throat> one of the, the titles that Jesus uses for himself as the Son of God, this is a very common title uh, you know, uh, for Jesus. You know, if we were you know, even looking at a systematic theology that would talk about the persons of the Godhead, if God the Son would probably be the title that would be given to the second person in that systematic theology. So it's an important one. And I think I'll, I'll close with this. I want to kind of close with uh, something from D.A. Carson on uh, that might help us to really understand how ancient readers would have thought of, uh, of Jesus as being the Son of God. Because when we hear Son of God, the, the first idea that comes into our minds is biological. And you, know, a, you probably have to work a little bit to prevent a picture coming along where there's you know, a Mrs. God and eventually there's a, a baby Son of God, which you know, we, we certainly know cannot be correct because Jesus is eternal in the same way that the Father is eternal. There never was a time that Jesus was not. Um, that that picture is obviously wrong, but you know it, it's kind of our most natural idea of sonship in our culture. But if we think about sonship in the perspective of the ancient Near East, uh, I think we'll probably get a, a big part of what sonship is pointing to. I'd like to to start just by looking at. Uh, you know, how the phrase sons of God is used mainly in the Old Testament. We'll look at a couple of New Testament uses of it. 
But at the beginning of Job, uh, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, uh, and Satan was also among them. A lot of translations will just translate that as angels uh, for, for clarity and simplicity. But here, angels are described as, as sons of God. In Exodus, um, this is uh, Moses talking to Pharaoh, then you shall, or Moses being told to talk to Pharaoh, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, uh, Israel is my firstborn son, and you shall say, let my son go that he may serve me. If we refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Second uh, Samuel 7.14 is talking about the Davidic king, so this would apply both um, to Solomon, if I remember the context right, as well as to Jesus. But it, since it does apply to, to Solomon, you know, you, you see that in a sense, the text is talking about Solomon as, as being a son of God. I will, be a father, or I will be to him a father, and he will be my son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with stripes of men. Um, in Romans 8.15, Christians are, are called God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery that to fall back to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So, how is it that, that Jesus is, is the Son of God? In the ancient world, sonship is very strongly connected to vocation. In, you, you see this if you look at very literal translations of the Old Testament. And this is just an example. It's, it's actually all over the place in the Old Testament. But if you go to 1 Samuel 2.12, it's talking about Eli's sons. And they're literally called sons of Belial. And Belial it means worthlessness. So they take after their father worthless so much that they're completely worthless themselves. In other words, it, it's as if they've kind of studied their vocation from Mr. Worthlessness himself. It has nothing to do with Eli. Eli is a righteous man in Samuel, and uh, a, a commendable person. Um, so it, it's not saying that their father is worthless. It's saying that they take after worthlessness so much that um, it's as if they studied it from him. Um, or they apprenticed themselves from worthlessness himself. Uh, apparently, these, these metaphors are all over the place in the Hebrew text. English translations tend to drop them because they don't really make sense to us as much. Uh, um, another you know, example, and this is, would be a New Testament in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. You're being a son of God there isn't literal, but it's meant to show close alignment with God's values. Um, there's one more that I'll, I'll let Carson kind of put in his own words because he said it so well. The, the power of the metaphor itself, Son of God, is seen as its greatest power uh, applied to Christians in Revelations uh, 21 and 22. Revelation, I'm sorry. Um, he will be my son, God says. And this is Revelation 21, 17. What it means in the context is this. He will be so much like me that there is no longer any possibility of sin or death or corruption or decay or rebel rebellion in the Christian who is thus called a son of God. Whether men or women, they're called sons of God because they reflect God as perfectly as finite human beings made in the image of God can. There is no taint. There is no sign of death or decay. The reflection of God is as perfect as is possible for a finite human to reflect an infinite God. Uh, so you, it's amazing to consider that one day we'll be like God in, in those sorts of senses because... Uh, <clears throat> certainly not, not every sense, but certainly some senses. Uh, 
the point that Jesus is asserting in his sonship in this passage is that he's the ultimate son of God. Um, John introduces this idea in the overture. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He, that is Jesus, has made him known. The, the Greek is more literally, he has exegeted him. Um, he's explained who, who God is. We see the same point by the author of Hebrews. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, uh, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the uh, word of his power. Uh, another thing that Carson pointed out is that in, in the ancient world, what, what sons would do is they would learn from their fathers. Uh, very few people would have gone to school back then. There, there were relatively few schools, no universities really. Families might hire tutors occasionally. The vast majority of children, of, of sons especially, would have worked with their fathers and learned what their father worked. Uh, it, it was almost expected that the son would end up having the same vocation as the father uh, because they would, they would learn that vocation from their father kind of in their, their, their teen years. And I, I think that's what sonship is getting at, that Jesus uh, uh, you know, is kind of the, the ultimate expression of God's son. Everything that he's learned is, is from the father in, in a sense that he, that he learns it. Um, we also, in addition to Son of God, we, have, we see that title, Son of Man. Um, I think I'd have just enough time to, to get to this. Uh, that, it's interesting. You, you see Son of Man. It's Jesus' favorite title in the Synoptic Gospels. Apparently in the Greek, and I, it would be fun to research exactly how this works, every time it's used, there's actually the Son of the Man. There's a definite article um, in it that makes it just a little bit awkward. And this is the one spot in John where that's absent. And it's also absent in Daniel 17, 13, and 14. I'll, I'll go ahead and uh, read those. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, uh, one that shall not be destroyed. And so Jesus, by claiming to be the Son of Man, I think is claiming to be this person that, that Daniel is pointing to. Um, and it, it's being this person that uh, Jesus, in fact, states is what gives him authority uh, to judge doesn't make sense that God would judge through um, Jesus, or, it, or sorry, it does make sense that God would judge through Jesus, who is both God and who is also fully human. He's lived a perfect life in a sinful world. He suffered the same temptations that we have, and so he would be perfectly able to, to judge righteously because he would really understand what it means to be man because, as Mark pointed out, he is fully 100% man. And I think just in the interests of time, I'm going to need to stop here and not get any further. I kind of hate to stop mid-thought because there is a little bit. Um, I didn't cut it off. Um, it, I've, I've heard it going in and out just a little bit. So um, 
but it, uh, one really quick question before we close. Okay, well, let me, let me close this in prayer. Differently, Father, thank you that you you came and you uh, <clears throat> stood up. You, you risked and eventually suffered death so that we could know God. You know, even when we were the ones who caused your death, you uh, revealed God to us perfectly and that you've called us uh, and we, we've heard your voice and you've given us spiritual life. We thank you for everything that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.